I'm Captain Kirk. Fascinating. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw it. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, excalbians, and things to episode 61 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Jarman, and we're here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And what are those, Steve? Us, the Muppets and Star Trek. We have been doing and will continue to bring to you one-to-one reviews of The Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. And tonight we're covering The Muppet Show with special guest star James Coco and Star Trek original series episode, Is There No Truth in Beauty? But before we get to those reviews, Jarman, do we have any feedback? Yes, we had a little fun tweet uh, out of nowhere somewhere. Um, By the time you hear this episode, this tweet would have happened a long time ago. But Steve and I have been recording these kind of farther in advance. So we apologize for not getting back to this one for a while. We wanted to have holidays and stuff. Go figure. Exactly. And, you know, COVID and all that jazz. So we had someone say this is um, from that damn podcast on Twitter. And they say, hey, Muppet Trek, we need to get at Bach to Zach or Zach Alexander, as his name on his profile says, on your show. So you can explain to him why the Muppets is awesome. Uh, Oh, he must be a hater. Yeah, exactly. So my guess was after doing a little bit of digging, just seeing what this is about, they have a podcast. And I think this Zach Alexander is either on that damn podcast or on the designated quizzers podcast because they also responded to this tweet. Uh, saying yeah and then he said no uh, so <laughs> that's a, man like alexander super hater all right he's not like the muppets so uh thanks for listening whoever on that damn podcast listens to the to muppet track we appreciate you and thank uh, you that damn podcast for listening to this damn podcast that's right and i we will say it. zach alexander i was not in the muppets at all i was like what's the big deal steve he's been talking about it since we were kids and so now i'm finally watching it though i get i get the appeal so you you can turn your life around if you just choose to watch some episodes and follow That's along true yeah. it's never too late to do the right thing zach <laughs> alexander so there you go and yeah send us an email at muppet trek at a play on nerds.com and maybe you can uh, reach out and maybe we can get him on the show and sometime. tell us what's the beef yeah what's the beef what's about the it? beef <laughs> so steve tell us about today's muppet show with special guest star james coco who is this person well, james, james coco? coco a much beloved american actor of the stage and screen he won uh emmys and drama desk awards and he was nominated for a tony and an oscar and two golden globes uh, but what does our audience probably know him from well he passed away in 1987 so most of us don't have a recent frame of reference to him or his work his most notable role and the one that he was nominated for an oscar for was as Sancho Panza in the 1972's A Man of La Mancha oh that was him okay. that's what that's where most people are going to know him from uh, but what's he up to this week on the Muppet show uh, mm-hmm. Well, there's not a ton of backstage plot to talk about. The only discernible backstage plot comes about halfway through when James Coco starts trying to advise Kermit on how to like spice up the show. Yeah. Even sending uh, dancing girls out into a sketch where they don't belong. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, on stage this week, Kermit introduces James Coco. But first, a trip under the sea where nephew Robin sings Octopus's Garden. We get transported underwater. Uh, floating with swimming buppets and sea creatures, and it's really a very good effect. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, next, James portrays a medium wearing a racially insensitive turban, which I'm guessing is where the Disney warning comes from this week. That's right. We got Disney warning uh, in this one, folks. a singing ghost and eventually join in singing Oh Danny Boy. Following this, Rolf, who tributes Beethoven with the song Eight Little Notes, a bust of Beethoven joins him in the song. Afterwards, we get Kermit on stage trying to get Robin to sleep. Then we get a dancing fever dream of snakes. <laughs> it's weird, and it feels like they had a concept but no sketch. Yeah. Robin then wakes up to find all the snakes in bed. We then take a trip to the Swedish chef's kitchen, who's making a banana split with a battle axe. But every time he's about to start, these uh, like flamenco dancers go across stage, and he eventually trips them with a banana peel. It's real funny. Next, we get a rare appearance from Wayne without Wanda, who begins to perform Catch a Falling Star when he's interrupted with his pants being on fire, and then the dancers, and then also the snakes are there from previous <laughs> sketches. Then we visit Dutchnerian's hospital, whose patient is one of the flamenco dancers. Uh, this is interrupted when uh, so those dancing girls I mentioned earlier randomly show up. Uh, and it ends with Rolf making some somewhat chauvinistic jokes about the dancing girls. Mm -hmm. Finally, we get James Coco. He joins the band and performs short people for a small, gigantic finale, as he terms it. Uh, he comes out and performs with short Muppets and the band is short. But James Coco faints when a very tall thog shows up and knocks down part of the set. Kermit thanks James Coco, who is cheered on, uh, cheered on by these little tiny people that you're so short that you can't see them in the camera frame. And that is what we call the Muppet Show. Indeed. So, German, what did you think of this week's episode with James Coco? Um, I had no frame of reference for who James Coco was. And so, you know, looking forward to mm -hmm. the episode kind of showing me who he was through his talents and his expositions and his performances. And there wasn't a whole lot of that. So <laughs> it was like, you could tell he, I could tell as somebody who didn't know who he was, that he had some acting experience because he wasn't bad in like the opener with a scooter. And mm -hmm. he find he's visit things backstage with Kermit. He made, you know, so it was acted well, but this wasn't a lot showing what he could do. And then, so he finally does short people. And I'm like, okay, he can sing pretty well. Um, that's not his song though. It's a, uh, what's his face? The uh, short people. Don't do it's the guy from the Pixar movies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's his Randy, Newman. Randy Newman. My mother uh, notoriously hates that song because my mom is four foot 11 and she's always her whole life since she heard that song. It's just terrible because short people have no reason to live. It's just awful. <laughs> so he didn't make a good impression. Uh, but I think the Muppets did a little better in saving the episode because I love Veterinarian's Hospital. And it was great watching them react to the chaos being done to the show by James Coco from the backstage. And incorporating the jokes into that was pretty funny. Um, and I really also just had a soft spot for the uh, the Beethoven sketch for some reason. I saw that song was really cute and talking. It was very musical minded about talking about how, you know, the different notes make up a song. And then all of a sudden Beethoven chimes in and sings with him. Thought that was really cute. Um, and I got a chuckle out of uh, they do the underwater number. And then he's like, oh, God, there's just still water in the stage. He's like, oh, don't worry. We, this next number will take care of it. And it's a bunch of sponges going out to dance. So they're going to yeah. basically scrub they up did the a stage. similar bit in a previous episode where there was a bunch of stuff on stage and they sent out like basically dusters. <laughs> yeah. Like a, an act that was that was sweeping. Oh, good. It's a recurring joke. <laughs> but I would say overall, this was not a very strong episode just because they didn't really do well with their host who was multi-talented. They could have done a lot because Broadway stars do like the best on the Muppets and they didn't really utilize him very well. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> 
in some ways I agree, in some ways I disagree in that, you know, this, at first when I was thinking about it, I was like, man, he wasn't in a lot of the episode, mm. which is one of my sort of bugaboos. And then I had to sit and think, no, he's in plenty of the episode. He's just never on stage. Yeah. Because he's backstage giving advice to Kermit multiple times. He's got his opener bit, but he only goes out for the medium sketch and then short people. Yeah. Otherwise, he's not on stage. So it was one of those times where I just wish they that they put him on stage more. Yeah. And and the one of the two times he's on stage, the medium sketch, not that not just the cultural insensitivity thing, but just it wasn't very funny. It wasn't very. No, it could have been anyone. It could have been any host. Yeah. It could have. It was not specific to him in any way, shape or form. Right. Um. So I, I sort of agree. That being said, even the the mainstays, the things that would typically sort of bail the show out, like Veterinarian's Hospital and uh, Swedish Chef's Kitchen were interrupted mm. in, and not always what I felt like was a fun way. Right. It's like we were being interrupted um, as the viewers, too. Right. Uh, and then once again, the, the situation where there is a backstage plot, but they introduce it too late. Mm hmm. Like James Coco didn't start doing the Kermit advice stuff till we were halfway through the episode. So it felt random the rest of the episode. Yeah, it almost felt kind but of But if he had together. been advising from the beginning, then it would have been funny and had an arc, you know, those sort of things. And what's funny um, is the octopus thing was so complex. They had to been prepping that months in advance, not knowing who the host would be. So it didn't really matter that they threw that in this episode because even though it was really great, it's just that it could have been any episode as well because he wasn't involved in that either. So I don't know. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so overall, you know, it wasn't terrible. What he did do was pretty good. Right. And then with Octopus's Garden, that big number, like that was spectacular. Um, but then a huge miss with like the snake thing it was yeah. a huge miss. I don't know. This will end up somewhere in the middle to the point where I don't think we'll ever really talk about it again. I agree. It's like bottom middle for me. It's just like forgettable. Just nothing stands out except the octopus number was complex. But other than that, it was like, eh, meh. Let's talk more about that music. Octopus's Garden, made famous by the Beatles and one of the few songs featuring Ringo. Uh, it's from their Abbey Road uh, album. Ah. Uh, Ringo wrote the song after a boat ride with former Muppet Show guest Peter Sellers. Huh. Uh, they were in, I think, Corsica or something, and he ordered fish and chips, and they brought him octopus instead of fish. And they told him all about this type of local octopus that would gather rocks and shiny objects to make a garden. <laughs> That's where it came from. Weird. Eight little notes. This is by Larry Grossman, Muppet, uh, Muppet Musical Associate. Um, and he wrote uh, Snoopy the Musical, uh, another famous Muppet mainstay song. Just one person uh, also came from that musical. And it was performed at Jim's Memorial and then also at the Muppets Tribute to Jim Henson. Uh -huh. So the same guy wrote it. Uh, in a Persian market, which was just very briefly uh, on, uh, by English composer Albert Kettleby. Uh, oddly enough, most of his biggest hits uh, had the same naming convention. Hmm. In a monastery garden, in a Chinese temple garden, and in a the mystic land of Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, Catch a Falling Star, written by Vance and Pachris. It was made famous by Perry Como. Uh, this was... That was Perry Como's last number one hit. And fun fact, he was an avid golfer and even had his own line of putters. 
they always make fun of that. Uh, I think it's actually in Family Guy at one point. Catch a snarling star and put it in your pocket. Wouldn't want to take a word. <laughs> like, it's just like it was saying so, like, ridiculously. <laughs> uh, short People, as mentioned, oh. written by a younger Randy Newman. Newman got bashed at the time uh, because of, of the prejudice portrayed in the song. But at the time, almost all of his music was written narratively from a biased perspective. So all of his songs were kind of like that. That one just was the one that was the hit. (laughs) Weird. (laughs) And it somehow got to number two on the Billboard charts. Wow. So people got no reason to live. Imagine a time (laughs) where you couldn't turn on your radio and not hear short people. Just imagine that time. Maroon 5 or short people. (laughs) They got short little arms. They got short little legs. <laughs> no reason to live. <laughs> God, it's terrible. Uh, but that's all the music this week. Uh, so, John, what did you think was the best Muppeteering moment? I mean, I have to give it to the, the Octopus Garden segment. I mean, it's just, it was so yeah, much going on. It was so elaborate. And then the cutaway to, to Piggy and Kermit separately was also very nice on its own. And the wider shot. You're right. Overall, it was kind of a masterpiece. Yeah, it was just beautifully done, head to toe. And something that like we like we as an audience and they could not have imagined doing season one. Oh, yeah. Just they have more budget now, more time to put things together, more people involved. It's just it was a lot. The tech. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't just couldn't imagine doing that. I don't even know how those little bubbles were created throughout throughout the video, but it was it was impressive. Uh, it's, it's magic. Magic. Uh, so, Jarman, tell us about this week's episode of Star Trek that we watched. Sure. So this week we have uh, Is There No Truth and Beauty? Um, and it has the Enterprise uh, going off to meet up with the Medusan ambassador Kolos or Kolos. I forgot how they pronounce it in the episode. Um, who's being accompanied by psychologist Miranda Jones. When they said Dr. Jones initially, I was like, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, <laughs> like the Temple of Doom. Um, but we might recognize her because it's played by Diana Moldar, who uh, was in a previous episode of the original series with a uh, blonde hair. Um, and she also goes on to play the doctor in uh, the second season of The Next Generation. Um, so Dr. Pulaski. So we'll see that later on. She's very well used in Star Trek. But anyways, she is apparently a um, woman who's human, but is in touch with her tele- telepathic abilities. And that's necessary to be involved with the Medusan, which apparently these people that are energy beings that if a human looks upon them, they go mad and might even die. But she can somehow withstand it with a visor because she has telepathic abilities and she trained on Vulcan and Vulcans apparently can uh, look upon a Medusan without going insane, but with much mental training. So she went to Vulcan her whole life to train her telepathic abilities. So now she's the one, you know, being the ambassador for the Medusan. Um, and the Medusans are non-humanoid creatures whose outward appearance is described as being so ugly as they cause humans to go insane. So that's apparently what I didn't really understand that going through because it seemed like there's energy beings that were hard to understand. So your mind can't fathom it kind of like, you know, Cthulhu. But no, it's they're just so ugly. They keep putting that through the whole episode. They're gross. Um, so anyways, they beam uh, Kolos and uh, Miranda Jones on board and Kolos is in a carrier thing so that people don't have to look upon him. And Spock assists them to getting them settled on the ship. And from the whole way through, Miranda Jones is jealous of, of Vulcan being there on the ship because of their Vulcan physiology that can withstand a Medusan's visage. So they're at dinner on the ship with Captain Kirk and the senior officers. And 
they're all just lusting after her for some reason. She's just incredibly appealing to them, according to the script. So every single person in that room is just hitting on her hardcore, and she's pretty much having none of it. And she's beamed aboard as well by her associate, this guy named Lawrence Marvick. And he's uh, basically, he apparently is also an engineer who worked on the Enterprise early on. So he's kind of involved in the science field and also involved with Jones. But she goes back to her quarters after being hit on a bunch. And Marvick goes to meet her at her quarters and he professes his undying love to her. And apparently she's uh, spurned his advances many times. And she wants to go off with them. Ambassador Kolos, the Medusan, and he's like, don't leave me, don't leave forever, don't you want to be with a human and feel love? And she spurns him one last time, and with her telepathic abilities, she can sense that he is wanting to murder someone, and she somehow doesn't know who, <laughs> but it's pretty obvious. So he goes off and tries to murder the Ambassador Kolos in his little box, but just then Kolos defends himself by opening the box and shows himself to Marvik, who goes insane, and so he goes to the engineering section and he's just beating people up left and right. And he makes the ship go past warp nine, which the ship never really does in an original series, which causes them to go out of their entire galaxy into this void. And he's like, now we're safe. Now we're safe from everything. And then she comes in to calm him down with Captain Kirk. And he once again realizes she's spurning his love. So he goes even more insane and crazy. And he passes out and dies right there on the floor in engineering. So they're in the middle of nowhere. They can't find their way home. Uh, they know that Medusans are very good at navigation. So Spock says he can meld his mind with the Medusan ambassador and they become, they'll become one for a short amount of time. And that way, Kolos can actually navigate them back home to their galaxy. But of course, Miranda is not happy about this because she wants to meld with the ambassador. And she's very jealous if Spock was to go near and melding with him because that would be infringing upon their intimate relationship. But they basically try to trick her by taking her away from um, Kolos so she won't be able to sense that Spock is going to meld with Kolos. And Kirk tries to seduce her, but with to no avail, which is great to watch. I always love when, when Kirk's seduction does not work, <laughs> which is really fun. And she runs back to Kolos, um, but she's blocked by Scotty and by by Bones, and they don't let her into the into where Kolos is because he's going to meld with Spock. So they take Kolos to the the bridge of the Enterprise, and Spock melds with him. And it's fun watching Spock being able to have some personality because Kolos is in his body and he can see people for the first time and interact with them. Um, but then he waxed poetic about how lonely it must be to be a human because you're stuck in these human bodies, these flesh bags your whole life, and you're not connected with everyone else around you. So Kirk's like, OK, that's great and all, but get us back to our galaxy. So he does. He navigates them back and then he goes back to uh, unmeld their minds. But he forgets to put Spock's goggles on, which protects Spock from being fully uh, insane from looking upon Kolos's visage. And they're like, no, Spock. And so suddenly he's looked upon him. And he starts going insane himself. So they get Spock to sickbay. He's basically gone to a comatose state because he's looked upon Kolos's visage. And they want Miranda Jones to help him to get, take user telepathy to get him back to being his old Spock again. And she's having trouble doing it. So Kirk like yells at her to convince her to do it. <laughs> Somehow that works. She gets Spock's brain back in, and at the same time, <laughs> Spock's brain back in, like Spock's brain. Um, and at the same time, she gets to mold with, with Kolos, finally. But in that, oh, I forgot the entire big reveal is the fact is that we figure out this whole time, which I thought was actually quite clever, Miranda Jones is actually blind, and she uses her clothing to sense those around her. Um, 
And that's, that's one, a big one. Yeah, that's one of the big reasons why they couldn't let her melt with um, Kolos to navigate the ship back because she wouldn't be able to see to actually navigate. Um, so, yeah. So but at the end, she's actually to mold with melt with Kolos. She's able to go off with him into the wherever they're going to go together forever and study him. And the ship is back in its galaxy. And that was my wonderful meandering description of what happened in this episode. But it was a good one. And I would I, I had totally forgotten about the reveal of her being blind. So that was pretty cool. Um, when you didn't mention it in that summary, <laughs> I was like, did I misread that or misremember that? And then yeah. finally, I was like, oh, thank God. It's funny because it actually isn't that consequential to the actual plot itself. Um, but it's just an interesting reveal. And if you watch back, you can see Dr. Jones kind of interacting with them in an unusual way. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not actually, it wouldn't have actually mattered that much if she was blind or not, because they could have just said, you don't have the knowledge to do this. Um, but either way, um, yeah. And so she goes off with Kolos and hopefully they live happily ever after. And we have some mention of, of Medusans in later series of Star Trek as well, because they're kind of an interesting race. Hmm. Okay. I wouldn't, you, so you actually get to see them again. Um, I don't remember see them, but you'd get dimensions of them a few different times. Um, okay. but yeah. So what do you think of this episode? All right, so the things I liked, the box, the fact that the the, the Medusan was a box, <laughs> I thought was itself like a funny reveal. Um, and like you're right, that there was a really weird element where we've had like beautiful women on the ship before, but she's on the ship for two minutes, and suddenly they're having like a six man and her dinner where everyone is shamelessly flirting. Every officer. Yeah, and I thought maybe I'd forgotten something about this episode where she has some power over men or something. But I was like, no, she's I just. I thought that was going to be the reveal. Like, she, <laughs> yeah. she uses her psychic abilities to cause these things. But nope. <laughs> um, but it was weird. It was just so weird to see, like, all all of them, even Bones and Scotty, like, yeah. everyone. Like, what a woman. The, first, the oh only people God. that weren't there were, like, Chekhov and Sulu. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that was weird. I did appreciate that this is finally. A, the like maybe the first seemingly legitimate strong female guest star we have ever had. Yeah, she took no shit from nobody, pretty much. She had multiple lines. Uh, she kept it kept it all in business. She put bones in this place. Mm-hmm. In that speech after that, like toast he gave. Uh, so it was just very impressive. Like normally, the 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 even the strong female guests fall apart. Yeah, eventually fall and she apart. She did. She did really well. Um. I, I did like the whole idea of the problem becoming the solution where Kolos is ultimately the is ultimately the only one that can get them back. Right. And that was very Star Trekky, which I appreciated. And then a nice reveal with the blindness thing. And I did like how it's uh I usually I think every episode would have where he wouldn't want to give Spock's body back and that would be the next dilemma. Um but no, this guy was like, All right, you're right, I'll give his body back. And so, like, that was actually kind of surprising to me. I was like, oh, I just assumed, like, every other episode, he would just be like a, a with, he'd be like so egotistical maniac, a space being that he wouldn't want to get the body back. But, yeah, it was a good change. Uh, things I disliked or struggled with a little bit. Uh, a human telepath? Have we seen this anywhere else? Is there any precedent <sighs> for this? Not really. And, and And what sucks is I really hoped she would have been a Betazoid. Which are which is what um, Deanna Troy uh, Deanna is Deanna Troy, yeah, because they're uh, telepaths and mostly like kind of empaths, but also telepathic abilities, and that's okay because they're they look like humans, but they're aliens. And I was like, I hope she's a Beta Z, but that or Betazoid, and she's she's not. So it's just human random. 
Well, and it also, it felt like she was supposed to be a Vulcan. Yeah. She trained on Vulcan. And they were like, ah, we ran out of ears. It's okay. We'll <laughs> fix it with a line or two. Like, that's how it felt. It felt like she was supposed to be a Vulcan. Yeah, she beams on and gives um, them the live long and prosper hands, you know. And that's what I thought. And then I looked at her ears and went, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and with the 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 Medusan, Kolos, if he knows that he drives people insane, why would he just come out seemingly randomly? When and they- at one point, Kirk, like, orders the entire crew to their quarters. Mm-hmm. But why? Like, I, I don't understand why he'd be like, all right, we're taking you through, sir. Stay inside the box. If they were worried about him, like, ah, like, <laughs> I'm out of the box. the box and making the entire crew go insane. It just didn't make sense to me. They treated him like a dangerous, unknown entity instead of an ambassador from an alien race. That's true. And there's a plot hole with like when he first beams on board, everybody has a visor on when it's beaming on, which I guess makes sense. Like, oh, because the box is partially transparent because he's beaming. But then when he beams back down, Spock put, makes an a point to put his, his goggles back on and then Kirk doesn't. And, and, no, and nobody gives a shit. No, gives a shit. Kirk's just fine. <laughs> it didn't matter. <laughs> Um, so that just felt weird and inconsistent in that regard. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but overall, a pretty good episode. I, th- I like it anytime we get to see Leonard Nimoy do something different with Spock. And when Kolos is in his head. Yeah, I love that monologue. That monologue, yeah. Uh, speech is so great, but you depend so much on it and all that stuff. Which is really good, and I like any time we get to see that. And they're real zoomed in on his face. You could see every micro movement of his acting, and it was just he was doing a fantastic job, I thought. Uh, and I've got to say, of what we've seen in season three so far, which is not a ton, really, yeah, uh, this is probably one of my favorites of season three nice. so far. Only five episodes in, but yeah, that's I'd yeah, say, yeah, yeah. I'd say it's a this good the one. first one of these of of the, what we've watched so far that I think has a chance of making it into like the top three. Uh, I got you. And that's fair. Long it's, way to it's, it's solid characters and solid story. It's interesting. Um, some some plot holes, but otherwise, otherwise good. Yeah. Cool. All right, you got some factoids. Some factoids. All right. So this is kind of fun. Um, although often cited by some fans as evidence of a larger message in Star Trek, the Idic, which is what she talks about. He has a, a, a emblem on his uh, sh- on his shirt, on his uniform. Spock does. That means infinite diversity and infinite combinations, which later on becomes like a motto kind of of the Vulcan race. Um, And it's a great uh, symbol. I was thinking about getting a tattoo of it myself. Um, But he wears this medallion uh, during the dinner scene. And you and uh, Dr. Jones even comments on it. Like, is that a slight towards me since I'm not, you know, capable of melding with Kolos? Um, So Leonard Nimoy was originally supposed to give a lengthy speech about the medallion and what it represented. But Nimoy found the speech completely unsuited to the plot and refused to say the lines until he got an explanation from Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, who had, who had had the lines and the use of the medallion inserted into the script. So Roddenberry came to the set and admitted to Nimoy that he was selling the Idic medallions through his personal marketing company, Lincoln Enterprises, and inserted the scene about the Idic purely as a product placement to generate sales. <laughs> so uh, wow. Nimoy ultimately refused to say the lines, and instead the scene was rewritten with Captain Kirk and other characters commenting on Spock's wearing of the medallion instead, which is fascinating. Um, as I said earlier, Diana Maldar, it was given a dark wig to wear for her role of Miranda this episode because she was earlier on as Dr. Anne Mulhall in Return to Tomorrow that we watched before. Mm-hmm. I remember um, yeah. 
And this episode's title is from a poem by the 17th century English poet and clergyman George Herbert from his poem, Jordan. And the poem's line says, who says that fictions only and false hair become a verse? Is there no truth in beauty? Which take that what you will. <laughs> so, Bam. Uh, it is commented by McCoy that a blind person couldn't pilot a spacecraft. However, on Star Trek The Next Generation, the blind Jordy LaForge piloted the Enterprise D as the ship's helmsman during the show's first season before he becomes the chief engineer. Um, and Dr. Jones's neural nets or the dress she wears in the show that can tell her where she's going and stuff can almost be seen as a precursor to LaForge's visor that he wears, uh, which kind of similar things. So mm, it's kind okay. of neat. And he has similar lines in the, in the next generation where he says, like, my vision's even better than yours. I can see the multi spectrums of light, you know. So she says a kind of similar monologue. She's like, I can tell exactly how far away I am from that door. I'm three meters and four centimeters or whatever. So it's kind of funny uh, comparisons there. But Steve, what kind of Trek connection, Muppet connections do we have? Oh, boy. Well, I hope you got the soundboard ready because James Coco appeared on three episodes of The Love Boat. Woo! As we've covered many, many guests. Oh, God. So many buttons. Many, many guests from both Star Trek and The Muppet Show have been on The Love Boat, including uh, Diana Moldar, uh, who was on this week's episode, was also on The Love Boat. Nice. I was expecting the thing one more time. Well, were you expecting this? Oh, there it is. <laughs> Delicious. Uh, both James Coco and Shatner were featured on season one episodes of the Ray Bradbury Theater, oh. an anthology series based around the works of uh, Fahrenheit 451 writer Ray Bradbury. Nice. Kind of like a Twilight Zone kind of Separate thing. episodes, but yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Diana Moldar had a reoccurring role on Batman the Animated Series Ooh. as Dr. Leslie Tompkins. Also on the series was Muppet Show guest and songwriter Paul Williams mm. uh, as the Penguin, as well as Mark Hamill, who not only acted across from Frank Oz in the Star Wars films, but also played the role of the scientist in Netflix's most recent Dark Crystal. Aha, that's right. One of the sexiest scientists, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man, I love that thing. Too bad it'll, it's gone. I know. It's really sad. Pieces of shit, Netflix. <laughs> uh, but, German, these were the same episode, right? Weren't they, though? I mean, the psychedelic dancing snakes looked very similar to what you'd see upon when you look upon a Medusin. You know, it's the same kind of effect. That's true. It looked very similar. <laughs> That's true. Uh, both feature overt do uh, overt bleh, bleh. both feature overt doting over beautiful women. The entire male crew over Doctor Jones and Doctor Bob over the dancing girls. Oh, that's very true. Uh, Kalos uh, doesn't know how humans live with such loneliness, just as James Coco doesn't know how people live being so short. <laughs> yeah, he just can't comprehend. I it. don't understand. Uh, both feature people taking directions from an outside consultant, Kolos helping them get back to the star, uh, get back to get the ship back to known space, and James Coco advising Kermit on how to spice up the show. Very well done. <laughs> oh, Bam. what is that? Transporter malfunction. Transporter malfunction. Okay, it's a time of the show where we transport one character from one episode to the other, and vice versa. What you got for us, Steve? 
Well, this week, Trick to Muppets, I've got James Coco uh, flipping places with Ambassador Colos. Backstage, uh, Kermit would ask for tips on how to spice things up, only to have the box open and drive him mad. <laughs> and I also think that short people would have been way funnier if it was Colos in a box. All the short on people st- go insane. All the short people and Colos is just there, a box. <laughs> Oh, my God. I understand what it is to be short. <laughs> I have uh, Dr. Miranda Jones transporting over to become James Coco's spirit medium. And with her actual telepathy, she is overwhelmed by the amount of Muppets that want to murder people, especially Animal and Crazy Harry, which I'm they really just want to kill people. <laughs> uh, Muppets to Trek this week. I've got the snake fever dream that Robin has coming over and replacing what people see when Kolos drives the mat. That was my similarities. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It was very I was similar. Like, it was basically the same thing. It was very surprising how similar those were. That um, would drive me mad, too. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and for Muppets to Star Trek, I have uh, the Swedish chef is going to go over to take the place of Kalos. Okay. Because Ooh, all right. it would be hilarious after he melds with Spock and then he just starts in- incoherently yelling, bort, bort, bort. <laughs> And he's ter- board, board, he's board, terrible board, at board. navigation. That whole monologue. That whole <laughs> <Yeah>. monologue. <laughs> well, he's, great at, he's great at navigation, but his alternately usable hands yes. are just fucking everything up. <laughs> oh, so lonely, lonely, lonely. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of episode 61 of the Muppet Trek podcast. That's right. Join us next time for the Muppet Show with special guest Helen Reddy. And original series episode Spectre of the Gun. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. Thank you.